Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. This is Abdul Nasser Jengda and you're listening to the Qalam Podcast. Before we get started with today's session, I wanted to share a really amazing resource with you. A question that everyone has, a problem that everybody deals with is, how do I focus within my prayer? How do I enjoy my salah? Well, the answer to that question, the solution to that problem is actually quite straightforward and simple. If we understand what we say within our prayer, we'll be able to focus on it, internalize it, and actually get back to enjoying our conversation with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We created a solution to make this possible. It's called Meaningful Prayer. This is a course, a curriculum, a seminar, a workshop that I taught in over a hundred locations all across this country and even in other countries. Tens of thousands of people have taken this course and it has really turned around, transformed their relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Well now, inshallah, you can take the Meaningful Prayer course online. You can take it according to your own schedule, at your own leisure. You can pace yourself. You can go back and review lessons multiple times to really be able to internalize them. Go to MeaningfulPrayer.com to sign up. Share this resource with others so that we can get back to not only just offering our prayers or performing our salah, but we can go back to experiencing a conversation and relationship with Allah. Now, to get on to today's session, inshallah, we're going to be covering the Shama'il Muhammadiyah, the prophetic personality. The following session was recorded at the Seerah Intensive. Bismillah, walhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Inshallah, today we're going to be studying chapter number 48 from the Shama'il Muhammadiyah, the prophetic personality. Chapter number 48 is Babu Maja'a fi Khuluqi Rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The chapter about the character of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The first hadith, قال المصنف حدثنا عباس بن محمد الدوري قال حدثنا عبد الله بن يزيد المقري قال حدثنا ليث بن سعد قال حدثني أبو عثمان الوليد بن أبي الوليد عن سليمان بن خارجة عن خارجة بن زيد بن ثابت قال دخل نفر على زيد بن ثابت رضي الله تعالى عنه فقالوا له حدثنا أحاديث رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال ماذا أحدثكم كنت جاره فكان إذا نزل عليه الوحي بعث إلي فكتبته له فكنا إذا ذكرنا الدنيا ذكرها معنا وإذا ذكرنا الآخرة ذكرها معنا وإذا ذكرنا الطعام ذكره معنا فكل هذا أحدثكم عن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم In the very first narration before actually I start with the narration just to explain um a little bit about the chapter, a little overview about the chapter. Babu Majaafi Khuluqi Rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The chapter about the mannerisms or the character of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The word is khuluq. So this particular word, bidam al kha wa dam al lam, it can also be said bisukun al lam khulqi Rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wasallam. But a different word that comes from the same root is bifatih al kha. Now, they both come from the same roots, 
khuluq and khalaq or khalq. However, the difference between the two is, is that khuluq is a word that represents the inner qualities. As-sifat al-batiniyya. As-sifat al-batiniyya. It represents the internal qualities of a person. In the realm of patience, mercy, dignity, benevolence, kindness, forgiveness, modesty, so on and so forth. Whereas khalq refers to al-awsaf al-zahira, the external, the outward character or the outward qualities, the external qualities of a person, the outwardly description of a person. And there are some, just as an overview, before we get into the chapter more specifically, and we observe the character of the Prophet ﷺ in different scenarios and different circumstances and situations. But as an overview, there are some very fascinating hadith of the Prophet ﷺ that tell us about uh, character and mannerisms in general. There's a beautiful hadith of the Prophet ﷺ found in Sahih Bukhari where the Prophet ﷺ says, إِنَّ اللَّهَ قَسَّمَ أَخْلَاقَكُمْ بَيْنَكُمْ كَمَا قَسَّمَ أَرْزَاقَكُمْ that God has distributed your character amongst you much as He has distributed your sustenance amongst you. So as there are people, and what this is meant to reflect is as there are people who have different levels of wealth or different levels of sustenance, similarly there are people who have different levels of character. And the Prophet ﷺ is creating a very interesting perspective here where the Prophet ﷺ is teaching us that just as we do comprehend and we actually quantify and we, um, to some extent, in a, at a healthy level, rival with one another and we measure ourselves against the property or the wealth of other people. Similarly, we should also have that same type of perspective, that motivation. We should measure one another. We should gauge ourselves when it comes to character as well, that this is not something that just, just simply should be dismissed. In another narration, uh, that's also an authentic narration, the Prophet ﷺ, he talking about this character, the Prophet ﷺ says to Al-Ashaj, that, That you have two characteristics, two qualities that God loves very much. Al-Hilm wal-Anat that you are forbearing, that you are very patient and thoughtful, and wal-anat. Again, you are very thoughtful and deliberate in your actions. And the Prophet ﷺ teaches us perspective in this regard as well, that you know, whenever we find ourselves in a circumstance, in a situation where we are very fascinated or we are very enamored with our external characteristics, that it's an opportunity and at that moment we should really reflect upon what our internal characteristics are like. And that's why authentically narrated the Prophet ﷺ, when he would look in the mirror, the Prophet ﷺ would say, Allahumma hassanta khalqi fahassin khuluqi. Oh Allah, you have beautified, you have made excellent my external appearance. So now, similarly, beautify my internal characteristics. And in Sahih Muslim, the Prophet ﷺ had a dua that he would make in the prayer, وَاهْدِنِي لِأَحْسَنِ الْأَخْلَاقِ 
Allah guide me to have the best of character because no one guides to the best of character except for you, O oh Allah. And of course, the Prophet ﷺ, in the hadith of Muwatta, the Prophet ﷺ also says, That I was sent to bring completion, to demonstrate the highest levels of noble character. Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha very famously said about the Prophet Al-Quran. That his character was the Quran. His conduct was in line, in, in, in sync, was, was, was uh, congruent with the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And of course the Quran itself says about the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, وَإِنَّكَ لَعَلَى خُلُقٍ عَظِيمٍ That you are above and beyond the most greatest and noblest of character. وَعَلَّمَكَ مَا لَمْ تَكُنْ تَعْلَمْ and God taught you what, that which you did not know. وَكَانَ فَضْلُ اللَّهِ عَلَيْكَ عَظِيمًا And the blessing and the benevolence of your Lord upon you is, is great, is, is majestic, is magnificent. So, understanding this particular perspective, that there is the outward manifestation, the outward appearance, the outward characteristics and traits and qualities. And then there's that internal capacity that a person has. And that's what's referred to in khuluq. Imam al-Ghazali rahimullahu ta'ala, when summarizing the concept of khuluq and character, he says that it is the conditioning of the soul from which actions then are derived from, that actions come from. So if the conditioning of the soul, the internal self, is good, that has been conditioned. Just think of the outward characteristics similarly. If somebody has combed their hair, cleaned their hair, combed their hair, then it appears very pleasant. Right? But if somebody does not care for it, does not wash and clean and comb and brush, then the appearance of the hair is not so pleasant. Similarly, if the conditioning of the self is there, then good character will come from it. And if it's not there, then bad character will come from it. Ibn Hajar rahimallahu ta'ala, when commenting on the same issue, he says that, Al-khuluq malakatun nafsaniya yansha'u anha jami'ul af'al. It is an internal capacity that gives a, a person the ability to emit beautiful actions and good actions. And so this chapter will basically, and, and the last thing I wanted to mention about this, um, or two things I wanted to mention about this before we go to the first hadith, because it's such a fundamental issue and this is such an important topic, that furthermore, the scholars of Tazkiyah and Tarbiyah, they talk about the idea that good character is at-tahalli bil-fada'il. It is to adorn oneself with noble, virtuous traits. And bad akhlaq, bad character is at Oh, and, and good character, excuse me, good character is to adorn oneself with fada'il, with virtuous character and actions, and at-takhalli anil radha'il. And it is to also remove from oneself bad, evil, detrimental characteristics and qualities and traits. 
And bad character would essentially be the opposite where, where, where a person takes on التحلي بالرذائل A person takes on bad habits وَالتَّخَلِّي عَنِ الْفَضَائِلِ And then that person is devoid. That person lets good qualities slip away from them. And they are devoid of good and noble traits and characteristics. Similarly, to kind of summarize the issue, Abu Muhammad ibn Abi Zayd al-Qayrawani, rahimullahu ta'ala, a very famous scholar of fiqh and usul, who has also written in the area of purification and character, and character, he mentions something that Ibn Rajab rahimahullah ta'ala mentions in his book, Jami'ul Ulumi Wal Hikam. And he says that, Juma'u adab al khayri wa azimmatahu tatafarra'u an min arba'ati ahadith. He says that all good and maintaining good, acquiring good in one's life, good qualities, good traits, good characteristics, that all of good qualities and good character and uh, acquiring good character can be summarized within four ahadith, four traditions of the Prophet ﷺ. These four narrations, the first of them, hadith number one, which is found in the Sahihain in Bukhari and Muslim, Abu Huraira radiallahu ta'ala anhu narrates that the Messenger of Allah ﷺ said, مَن كَانَ يُؤْمِنُ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ فَلْيَقُلْ خَيْرًا أَوْ لِيَسْمُتْ That whosoever believes in Allah and the last day, the day of resurrection, that person should speak good or remain quiet. Hadith number two is the hadith found in the book of Tirmidhi, narrated by Ali ibn al-Husayn, that the Prophet ﷺ said, إِنَّ مِنْ حُسْنِ إِسْلَامِ الْمَرْءِ تَرْكُهُ مَا لَا يَعْنِيهِ That from the beautification or from the beautiful, beautiful practice of one's Islam, is leaving those things that do not concern a person. Minding your own business. Number three, the hadith that's found in Bukhari, narrated by Abu Huraira radiallahu ta'ala anhu, that a man, anna rajulan qalin in sallallahu alayhi wa The man asked the Prophet sallallahu please advise me, O Messenger of God. Give me some very conclusive advice. O sini. The Prophet said, do not succumb to your anger. When he said, give me conclusive advice, he said, do not succumb to your anger, do not give in to your anger. And then he repeated the question, and the Prophet repeated once again, that do not give in to your anger. And then the fourth narration, the fourth hadith, the Prophet it's narrated in, again, the book of Bukhari and Muslim, that the Prophet ﷺ, he mentioned, he said, narrated by Anas radiallahu ta'ala anhu, لَا يُؤْمِنُ أَحَدُكُمْ حَتَّى يُحِبَّ لِأَخِيهِ مَا يُحِبُّ لِنَفْسِهِ That none of you truly believes until he loves for his brother what he loves for himself. And so these are the four narrations, and then commenting on them, some of the scholars have mentioned that the first hadith basically teaches us controlling one's tongue, watching one's speech, becoming mindful of what someone is saying. That's the first step in that purification process and becoming a person of truly noble character. That you just don't say the first thing that pops into your head or you don't say the very first thing that just occurs to you. 
The second narration advises us and tells us about the aspect of removing frivolous things from our lives. Not concerning ourselves with things that do not concern us. That have no bearing upon us. Cutting down on all the excess within our lives. All the things that clutter our minds and our hearts. Number three is to have control of your emotions and yourself. We're feeling anger in and of itself. Anger occurring, feeling angry about something is not what's problematic. It's giving in to that anger and acting on that anger that is problematic. Imam Shafi'i rahimahullah ta'ala very famously said, somebody who never gets angry is not a human, he's a donkey. Meaning nothing, if nothing ever bothers you, if nothing ever offends you, if nothing ever challenges your sensibilities, you have no sensibilities, you are therefore a donkey. So you will be bothered by something, but when you're bothered by something, then how do you react? Do you lash out? Or do you have some semblance of self-control? And then the fourth hadith basically talks about that it really is a reflection of the purity of one's heart, how they treat other people and how they deal with other people. So this is kind of a summary of akhlaq from the advice and the guidance of the Prophet ﷺ. Now let's take a look at the character of the Prophet ﷺ, how it exactly manifested within his life. So this very first narration, to just give a basic translation of it, and then we'll talk, a little, we'll talk briefly about it. This is narrated by the son of Zayd ibn Thabit, a very great companion of the Prophet ﷺ. He says that a group of people visited Zayd ibn Thabit, and they said to him that, tell us, narrate to us, re- relate to us traditions, a hadith, some practices from the Prophet ﷺ. He said, what should I narrate to you? What should I relate to you? And then he said that, I was his neighbor. I lived near him. And when divine revelation would descend upon him, then he would call for me. He would send for me. And I would write it for him. I would transcribe it for him. He would dictate it to me. And if we were talking something Uh, if we were talking about something pertaining to our lives, our worldly affairs, then he similarly would join into that conversation with us. That's what he would talk about. And if we were talking about the life of the hereafter, then that's what he would contribute to the conversation. If we were talking about food, then that's what he would contribute to the conversation. And he says, all of this I relay to you from the Messenger of God, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Now to understand this a little bit and to go further into it, first and foremost, when they ask him that relay some ahadith to us, and he responds by saying that, Mada uhadithukum, what should I relate to you? That's ta'ajjaba min dhalika, that's a little bit of kind of some shock or dismay being expressed by Zayd ibn Thabit that, what do you mean, relay the ahadith of the Prophet ﷺ to you? The, the ahadith of the Prophet ﷺ are more than can be enumerated, they are more than can be counted. Right? That there are, I mean, where do I start? Where do I begin? Where do I end? That's a, that's a huge task. So he's basically telling them that you need to be more specific. And then he decides to 
kind of maybe give them a very general overview of the character of the Prophet ﷺ. And he mentions, he says, I was his neighbor. And what that basically refers to is, is obvious that he used to live very close. Bayti qaribum min baytihi. That I lived very close to him. And what he means to say by that is, therefore, I used to spend a lot of time in the company of the Prophet ﷺ. Zayd ibn Thabit was not only one of the more closer uh, students of the Prophet ﷺ. He was not only just one of the more knowledgeable companions of the Prophet ﷺ, where the Prophet ﷺ said, Afradukum Zayd ibn Thabit. That basically he said, the most knowledgeable amongst you about the laws of inheritance is Zayd ibn Thabit. And he was also one of the most knowledgeable about the Qur'an amongst the companions. So, but at the same time, he said, I benefited from his company greatly. I used to see him every single day. I used to spend time with him, not just in the masjid, but even outside the masjid, because I was his neighbor. And then he says that when he would receive divine revelation, he would send for me and I would write for him. There are, and so he was from amongst the individuals who are remembered as Kutabul Wahi, the, the scribes of divine revelation. And there were nine of them. There were nine companions who were more regular uh, attendees. They were the people that the Prophet ﷺ primarily relied upon to transcribe divine revelation, the Qur'an, when it was revealed upon him. And Zayd ibn Thabit is said to be maybe the most regular amongst them. He was the one who the Prophet ﷺ sent for most frequently, called for most frequently. The other eight are Uthman ibn Affan, Ali ibn Abi Talib, Ubayy ibn Ka'bin, Muawiyah, Ibn Abi Sufyan, Khalid bin Sa'id, Hanzala, Ghasil al-Mala'ika, Al-Ala ibn al-Hadrami, and Aban ibn Sa'id. And then lastly, of course, as we mentioned, first and foremost was Zayd ibn Thabit. These were the nine people, the nine companions, whom the Prophet ﷺ primarily relied upon to uh, write down the revelation of the Qur'an as it came upon the Prophet ﷺ. So after mentioning this, he then mentions the character of the Prophet ﷺ. And he mentions something that's, uh, as some of the commentators write, فِيهِ دَلِيلٌ ظَاهِرٌ عَلَى كَمَالِ خُلُقِهِ وَحُسْنِ مُعَاشِرَتِهِ وَغَايَةِ تَلَتُّفِهِ بِأَصْحَابِهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ لِيَزِيدَ إِقْبَالُهُمْ عَلَيْهِ وَإِسْتِفَادَتُهُمْ مِنْهُ That he then talks about the fact that if we were there, and we were having a conversation with the Prophet ﷺ, or the Prophet ﷺ entered upon a conversation that we were having, and we were talking about just our, you know, our lives. If we were talking about our families, or we were talking about work, or we were talking about the day. The Prophet ﷺ similarly would talk to us, he would also contribute to the conversation, by talking about family, by talking about work, by talking about the day. If we were there having a conversation about Akhirah, Paradise and hell, the life of the hereafter, the day of resurrection, then that's what he would contribute to the conversation. That's what he would, not just contribute, of course, as a messenger of Allah, that's what he would then give in the conversation. That's what he would bless the conversation with. And he said so much so, then he mentions, the last thing that he mentions, very interesting. And he mentions it deliberately because it might seem insignificant to us that if we were talking about food, what did I eat? What did you eat? then that's what he would also bless the conversation with. What did he eat? And what we understand from this, what we take from this, is that the Prophet ﷺ was not one to basically come in, and for lack of a better term, 
just hijack the conversation. Take over the conversation. Just enter a room and just completely, um, you know, just overlook everyone. And this is a sign, somebody acting or behaving that way, is a sign of somebody being very self-absorbed and self-involved. Being just completely impervious to everyone and everything around them. And also it shows a lack of empathy. Somebody who would act that way shows a lack of empathy. Somebody might be sitting there and okay, they're talking about work. But how do you know that somebody's not just talking about work somewhat you know, therapeutically, that this is cathartic for the person. Maybe they had a very difficult day at work. Maybe they're having a lot of difficulty and trouble at work and they're just trying to find a sympathetic and empathetic ear and they're just trying to have a conversation where they can unload some of their concerns, their worries, their hum, their huzun, their grief, their sorrow. And then I walk into the room and I sit down and I just take over the conversation. That that shows somebody not caring about other people. Being very self-absorbed, self-involved. And the Prophet ﷺ was not like that. And, and allow me to just say this, and I hope it's not misunderstood. I'll try to say it as carefully as I can. If anybody ever had the right, and if it would be acceptable for anyone to ever just walk into somewhere and just start talking, regardless of who's there and what they've been talking about and what's going on with them, if somebody, if anyone was of that position, and if there ever was anyone, that nobody would object to that, nobody would mind that, they would still in fact feel very blessed and very fortunate. It was the Prophet ﷺ. Can you imagine anyone ever complaining? Nobody would ever complain. But the Prophet ﷺ was not like that. And if he never did that, and he received divine revelation, God spoke to him. He could basically walk into any room, any time, and basically start the conversation with Allah Ta'ala. Who would object? Who would complain? And if he didn't do that, then where do we get off doing that? How do we become so self-absorbed and self-involved? That having that type of empathy and being considerate of others, and in giving importance to others, and respecting other people, valuing other people, and what's going on with them, that empathy, that was the greatest character quality of the Prophet And that's what won everyone over. So this narration shows us something really remarkable, and the last comments I'll mention, Imam Al-Qurtubi and some others comment on this, that they basically say that it's actually a sign of spiritual delusion. Somebody is spiritually delusional. Where if they walk into a room and somebody's sitting there talking about their kids, or they're talking about work, or they're talking about you know, what they had for dinner, and they kind of walk in and just basically have to start like some very deep, profound, reflective you know, conversation. Not really a conversation, it's a monologue. right? They have to walk in and start a khutbah basically every single time. Alhamdulillah. Right? That's, that's being spiritually delusional. 
That there's nothing noteworthy, there's nothing praiseworthy, there's nothing good about that. And one of the scholars, the commentators, Ashraful uh, Wasail, uh, the text uh, on this particular narration says something so powerful. He said, عَلَيْهِ Because, well, what about, here's a legitimate question. You walk into the room and they're just talking about what they had for dinner, or they're talking about what they would like to have for dinner. What are you going to eat? What are you going to eat? Right? Those are usually not the most thought-provoking of conversations. All right, a bunch of hungry guys just talking about what they want to eat, right? So, but if you do actually truly have something blessed, noteworthy, beneficial to share with them, do you think they're actually going to listen to you? And they're going to want to listen to you and pay attention to you and engage with you if you walk in and just completely domineer just a conversation? just completely hijack the conversation? Do you think they're going to really be inclined to participate and to take part and to be attentive and listen? No. But the Prophet ﷺ had the ultimate wisdom. By doing this, by being one of them, by being one of the people, the Prophet ﷺ actually increased their attentiveness and their, and their, their capacity and their willingness to benefit from the Prophet ﷺ. And to truly listen to what he had to say. So this is the very first narration of this chapter, which kind of gives an overview overall of just how one's character should be. That one's character should not be in a way that troubles other people, that bothers other people, that annoys other people, that, that offends other people, and minimizes people. That should not be someone's behavior and someone's conduct. The next hadith in the chapter, hadith number two, قال المصنفو, حدثنا إسحاق بن موسى قال حدثنا يونس بن بكير عن محمد بن إسحاق عن زياد بن أبي زياد عن محمد بن كعب القرضي عن عمرو بن العاص رضي الله تعالى عنه قال كان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يقبل بوجهه وحديثه على أشر القوم يتألفهم بذلك فكان يقبل بوجهه وحديثه علي حتى ظننت أني خير القوم فقلت يا رسول الله أنا خير أو أبو بكر فقال أبو بكر فقلت يا رسول الله أنا خير أو عمر فقال عمر فقلت يا رسول الله أنا خير أو عثمان فقال عثمان فلما سألت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم فصدقني فلوددت أني لم أكن سألته To translate very briefly Amr bin al-As radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he says that the Messenger of God sallallahu alayhi wasallam would turn his face and also um, turn his speech. And a better translation for that would be that the Prophet ﷺ was very attentive in terms of with his face looking at someone um, and with his speech by addressing someone, even the worst of the people. He was very attentive physically and verbally to even the worst of the people. And he would bring them closer through this demeanor, through this character. So when he would speak to me, he would look at me and address me directly. So much so that I started to assume that I must be the best of people. How attentive he is towards me. So I said, O Messenger of God, am I better or is Abu Bakr? And he said, Abu Bakr. 
I said, O Messenger of God, am I better or is Umar? He said, Umar. I said, O Messenger of God, am I better or is Uthman better? He said, Uthman. Whenever I asked the Prophet ﷺ, he was always honest with me. And now I wish that I hadn't asked him anything at all. <laughs> so, to explain a little bit of background about this narration, Amr bin al-As was a leader of the Quraysh. And Amr bin al-As was not only just a leader of the Quraysh, he was a very staunch opponent of Islam and the Prophet and the Muslims for a very long time. He was so vehement in his opposition to the Prophet that in the sixth year of Hijrah, there was a treaty called Hudaybiyah, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, at the place of Hudaybiyah. Part, uh, one of the terms of that treaty was that the Muslims were coming that year to perform Umrah. The Prophet ﷺ, uh, they were coming to perform Umrah. One of the terms of the treaty were, was that they would return back. They would not proceed on towards Mecca for Umrah. They would return back home. They would come back a year later and they would be allowed to do Umrah at that time. Mecca was still under Quraysh, Quraysh's control. But they would be allowed in peacefully for three days to be able to perform their Umrah. That was a term of the treaty, signed and agreed to by the Quraysh. When the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims came in that seventh year of Hijrah, Amr bin al-As was so staunchly opposed, still to the Prophet ﷺ, even though now, supposedly, the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims were their allies. But he was so staunchly opposed to this, that he protested the Prophet ﷺ's physical presence in Mecca by leaving Mecca. He said, if Muhammad ﷺ will be in Mecca, I will not be in Mecca. Mecca's not big enough for the both of us. And he went and waited outside of Mecca until the Prophet ﷺ would leave Mecca. The following year, in the eighth year of Hijrah, he would have a change of heart. And he would be really just have a moment of honest... You know, just he would just be really honest with himself and have a have a moment of truthfulness, and he came to realize that this is just my stubbornness that's getting the best of me at this point. And so he realizes his error, and he travels to Medina to go and accept Islam and apologize to the Prophet ﷺ and make amends. When he arrives in Medina, it's a very touching narration. The Prophet ﷺ hears about his arrival, and the Prophet ﷺ is excited. He's he's looking forward to welcoming him. And he enters a masjid and the Prophet ﷺ welcomes him and he comes and he sits down to accept Islam. And he won't look at the Prophet ﷺ. He's looking down, he won't look at him in the face. And the Prophet ﷺ said, what's wrong? Why don't you look at me? And he said, oh messenger of God, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed of myself. I fought you and opposed you for so long. I'm ashamed of myself and my behavior." And the Prophet ﷺ said, there's no need for this embarrassment. Islam removes what was before it. Islam wipes the slate clean. So don't be troubled. So there was this very beautiful moment, but Amr bin al-As kind of carried that weight for a while. That you know, I have some ground to cover. I have to make up for a lot. So that kind of weighed heavy on him. And that's why if you look in the narration, he says something, you kind of see that there. He, and, and Amr bin al-As was an elder statesman. He was a, known as a very educated, very well-traveled, experienced, intelligent person. 
And that's why the Prophet ﷺ utilized him for very strategic affairs from the very beginning. As soon as he came into the community and started to benefit from the tarbiyah, the conditioning of the Prophet ﷺ, his mentorship, the Prophet ﷺ utilized him for a lot of state-related affairs. Because he was a very senior statesman. He was very intelligent. And so he's an intelligent person. He picked up on this. He says that the Prophet, even the worst of the people, the Prophet ﷺ would look at them, he would address them, he would know their names, he would talk to them. It didn't matter who somebody was. The Prophet ﷺ was not an elitist. The Prophet ﷺ was not exclusive. Where there were like four people who were the inner circle of the Prophet ﷺ. And trying to approach him was like running into a brick wall. That's not what the Prophet ﷺ was like. The Prophet ﷺ wasn't some like elitist you know, celebrity or politician or something of that sort. But everyone had access to him. And he himself would approach people and talk to people. And look at what he says. He says he would even look at and address respectfully, very affectionately, even the worst of the people. And that's how he used to speak to me. He was still carrying that burden. I'm the worst of the people. I waged war against the Prophet for 20 years. Who can be worse than me? So he's carrying that weight. And there's another narration that's also found in the Sahih Imam Bukhari, where in this narration he kind of asks, who's better? But that narration is more authentic. In that particular narration, he asks the Prophet ﷺ, and there's actually some background to this as well. A couple of months after accepting Islam, there was an expedition that was going, Ghazwatu Dhatis Salasil. And the Prophet ﷺ appointed Amr bin al-As to be the leader of the group. And he says that when I got back, and in that group were people like Abu Bakr, Umar. There were such high-ranking people in that group. So when I got, by the time I got back, I, I was a little, you know, deluded by that, or I was a little enamored by that fact that, have I made that much progress? Have I climbed so quickly through the ranks? There were no ranks to climb through, but you understand that process. That now he sends me in a group with Abu Bakr and Umar and puts me in charge? So he came back and he says, I asked the Prophet ﷺ, who amongst the people do you love the most? And in that narration of Bukhari, he says, Aisha. And he says, oh, well, obviously that's your wife. But um, I don't mean like that. Like amongst the brothers. Who is most beloved to you from amongst your companions, your friends? And he said, Abuha, her father, Abu Bakr. I said, okay, well, that's a given, obviously. Thummaman, then who? He said, Umar. <coughs> and I said, Thummaman, who? Then who? And he said, Uthman. And in some narrations, he said, I asked multiple times, he mentioned other people like Ali and other people. And then finally, I said, I should maybe stop asking, lest I discover that I'm at the end of the list. <laughs> so, like he says over here, the Prophet never lied to me. He was very kind and very affectionate, but he wouldn't lie to me because he knew he was older, he was senior. He, know, he knew Amr could basically kind of take a little blunt dosage of the truth. And he says, so every time I asked him, he was very honest with me. But then there was a moment where I kind of regretted asking him. Um, 
But again, you kind of see the Prophet ﷺ, the, the shahid, the reason why Imam Tirmidhi brings this narration in this chapter is for the first part of the narration. And that is that it didn't matter who somebody was, how new they were to the community, what their position or status or situation was, that the Prophet ﷺ would physically and verbally be attentive and, and kind and gracious and generous to each and every single person. He would look at everyone, would address everyone. That was the character of the Prophet ﷺ. The third narration in the chapter, قال المصنف حدثنا قتيبة بن سعيد قال حدثنا جعفر بن سليمان الضبعي عن ثابت عن أنس بن مالك رضي الله تعالى عنه قال خدمت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم عشر سنين فما قال لي أف قط وما قال لي شيء صنعته لما صنعته ولا لشيء تركته لما تركته وكان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم من أحسن الناس خلوقا ولا مسست خزا ولا حريرا ولا شيئا ألين من كف رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم ولا شممت مسكا قط ولا عطرا كان أطيب من عراق من عرق من عرق النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم. The translation. Anas ibn Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu says that I served the Messenger of God sallallahu alayhi wasallam for 10 years. And he never said the word uff to me. He never expressed displeasure to me and disapproval. And he never, he never said about something that I had done, why did you do this? Nor did he ever say about something I had not done, why didn't you do it? And the Prophet ﷺ, he says, was the best of humanity in character and mannerisms. And he says that I have never touched any silk, any garments or any silk, nor anything at all that was more soft and welcoming than the palm the hand of the Prophet ﷺ. And he says that I never smelled any musk ever, nor any type of perfume that was more fragrant than the sweat of the Messenger ﷺ. In this narration, again to give just a very, uh, a little bit of quick background just so that uh, everyone's able to uh, understand and exactly appreciate um, where this narration is coming from. When the Prophet ﷺ arrived in the city of Medina, Anas ibn Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu, his mother, Umm Sulaim, she came to the Prophet ﷺ. He was 10 years old at the time. Very brilliant child, really intelligent young boy. And she came to the Prophet ﷺ and she said that his father has passed. He was not a very wealthy man. He didn't leave a lot behind um, and so I worry about him sometimes that he might not get all the privileges and all the benefits that a lot of other children have. I might not be able to give to him what exactly what he needs in the absence of his father. So I would like to present him to you, O Messenger of God, as an assistant, as someone to help you with different tasks and assist you in different, uh, you know, in daily tasks. And he then remained the personal assistant of the Prophet ﷺ for the next 10 years until the Prophet ﷺ passed away. 
So that's a little bit of background. So now keep that in mind, keeping that in mind, when Anas radiallahu ta'ala anhu says something about the Prophet ﷺ, he was someone who benefited from the company of the Prophet ﷺ seven days a week. You know, 18 hours a day. He was constantly in the company of the Prophet ﷺ. So he knows what he's talking about. And what he says here is that I served the Prophet ﷺ for 10 years and he never said uff to me ever. And of course, uff in the Arabic language, we see it in the Quran as well. فَلَا تَقُلَّهُمَا أُفٍ When talking about parents that don't even say uff to them, that's a sound of an expression of you know, displeasure or annoyance or disapproval. And what he's saying is that the Prophet ﷺ, he never did that to me. He never did that to me. He never verbally reprimanded me. And he says that whenever I did something I wasn't supposed to do, he never just came down on me. And what he means by that is not that he didn't correct me or teach me anything. This should not be misinterpreted to mean like not teaching someone or enabling bad behavior or just neglecting the tarbiyah of you know, a younger person. Not that. But he said he didn't call me out publicly. Like if I did something, he didn't say, Hey, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? That's not how he taught me. And if I didn't do something I was supposed to do, he didn't just call me out and embarrass me and humiliate me in public. Hey, why aren't you doing this? That wasn't the character of the Prophet And that's why he summarizes by saying that the Prophet had the most beautiful and best and noblest of character. And then he comments, by, and before actually I move on to the second part of the hadith, there's other narrations uh, you know, that, are, that are complementary to this narration. Abu Nu'aym has a narration from Anas ibn Malik where again he says, I served the Prophet ﷺ for 10 years. فَمَا سَبَّنِي قَطُّ He never said a bad word to me. وَمَا ضَرَبَنِي ضَرْبَةً He never physically struck me. وَلَا انتهرني. He never like shook me down. Like never just, you know, verbally just berated me. He never even made like a bad face at me. Like he didn't even just, you know, physically express his displeasure with me. This is what's even more remarkable. He was a personal assistant of the Prophet He says, nor did this ever occur. That he assigned a task to me and then I did not follow through with it. That he then reprimanded me. That never even happened. But if somebody else reprimanded me, maybe a family member or a more senior companion, didn't the Prophet tell you to do this an hour ago? Even if somebody else reprimanded me, he would interject. Leave him alone. Leave him alone. If it was meant to be, it would have happened an hour ago. That just tells you God didn't destine for it to happen. In another narration, he says that, وَلَكِنْ يَقُولُ Rather he would say, قَدَّرَ اللَّهُ وَمَا شَاءَ فَعَلُ Whatever God decrees is what happens. Whatever God wills is what happens. وَلَوْ قَدَّرَ اللَّهُ كَانَ If God would have destined it, it would have occurred. وَلَوْ شَاءَ اللَّهُ لَكَانَ If Allah wanted it to be, it would have been. Just to basically deflect any anger towards me. He would interject and he would defend me when I was the one who hadn't done my job. But he would defend me. 
And then the, in the second part of the narration, he says that, وَلَا مَسَسْتُ I never touched khaz. Now the word khaz, if you, if you look in the um, translation, it kind of mentions that silk cloth, nor pure silk. Harid is pure silk. Khaz, the reason why it mentions silk cloth, is that they used to have particular garments or robes that people would wear at that time that were not just purely made out of silk. A lot of times what it would be is that it was made out of wool, and then it would have silk trimming on it. So that's what khaz would refer to. So either way, he's just talking about really nice soft clothing. He says that I never touched any type of silk, nor wool, nor any type of you know, very soft clothing that was more softer than the hand of the Prophet ﷺ. Now, what exactly does that mean? Some of the scholars have interpreted it both ways. That one, first and foremost, it is an expression basically saying that that's how gentle and that's how welcoming and that's how embracing the Prophet ﷺ was. He just kind of, he just welcomed you and he made you immediately comfortable. Immediately comfortable. And some mentioned that this was part of the mu'ajiza of the Prophet ﷺ. Because there are some other narrations which talk about the fact that when the Prophet ﷺ went out into the battlefield, his hand was like iron. His hand was like iron. When they were digging the trench at Khandaq, and they came upon a big old rock, a boulder that nobody could break, they went and they called the Prophet ﷺ. Ya Rasulullah, we need some help. And the Prophet ﷺ was wearing like a shawl, kind of like as a shirt, he took the shawl off, he took his shirt off. And he got down inside of the trench, and he asked for the tool that they were using, the axe or the hammer, and he basically took it and he struck it. And the narration says that he struck it, and it just crumbled into dust. He obliterated this boulder, that like a dozen of us had been hacking away at for a while. So that was the strength of the Prophet ﷺ. The famous narration of Rukana, where this gigantic wrestler, who was like twice the size of the Prophet ﷺ. He was like, he was, he was an athlete, he was famous, he was a celebrity for his strength. That when he challenged the Prophet ﷺ to wrestling, the Prophet ﷺ narration actually says, he picked him up and threw him down, which is what we call body slamming. He body slammed a man that was like twice his size. So there was that strength, but this was part of, some of the scholars mentioned this was part of the mu'ajiza, the miracle of the Prophet ﷺ, that when the need was there, his hand was like iron. He could crush a boulder with his bare hands. But when he interacted with people, his hand was softer than silk, to make them comfortable. And then he talks about this is also, Part of, again, this is mentioned as well, part of the miracle of the Prophet ﷺ, that even the sweat of the Prophet ﷺ was extremely fragrant. This was part of his miracle. And that's why some of the Ummahatul Mu'mineen, authentically narrated, some of the Ummahatul Mu'mineen, like Umm Salama radiallahu ta'ala anha, had collected in a little container, like a little bottle that you would find like itar, like perfume in, she had collected some of the droplets of sweat of the Prophet ﷺ. And she said years, decades after he passed away, I would open it up and immediately the whole room would become fragrant. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So this particular narration, Imam At-Tirmidhi brings it for obvious reason because it demonstrates the way the Prophet even treated a minor. The previous narration talked about how he treated somebody who was an enemy, 
who had joined them. He never held Amr bin al-As's past against him. And this narration demonstrates how the Prophet would even treat a minor, not only just a minor, but how he would treat a subordinate, how he treated somebody who worked for him. Anas, the Prophet was not requesting him. The Prophet could have told him what to do. He worked for the Prophet ﷺ. But the Prophet ﷺ treated him with such dignity and respect. And that's why Imam At-Tirmidhi uh, brings this particular narration uh, in this chapter about the character of the Prophet ﷺ. In the next hadith, hadith number four, قَالَ الْمُصَنِّفُ حَدَّثَنَا قُتَيْبَةُ بْنُ سَعِيدٍ وَأَحْمَدُ بْنُ عَبْدَةَ الضَّبِيُّ وَالْمَعْنَى وَاحِدٍ قال حدثنا حماد بن زيد عن سل عن سلم 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 العلوي عن أنس بن مالك رضي الله تعالى عنه عن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم أنه كان عنده رجل به أثر صفرة قال وكان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم لا يكاد يواجه أحدا بشيء يكرهه فلما قام قال للقوم لو قلتم له يدع هذه السفرة in this narration, Anas ibn Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he narrates from the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that there was a man sitting near the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and on his clothing were the effects, the color of saffron. I understand that the translation here says that yellow colored clothing, that is not correct. Basically refers to the fact that that person had saffron that had been rubbed on the person's clothing. That's what the yellow, because saffron leaves that yellow stain. So he had that saffron that had been rubbed on his clothing. And the Messenger of Allah wasallam, it says, did not, he was not one who would address a person disrespectfully. So when that person got up and left, the Prophet ﷺ said to someone who was sitting there, that if you could please advise him to not apply this saffron to his clothing. Zafaran, the saffron to his clothing. Now obviously, this probably piques the curiosity of some. So to explain exactly what's the deal with saffron, there's some other narrations... So, so there are other narrations as well that, dis, that, that express, that communicate to us the displeasure of the Prophet ﷺ as seeing saffron being rubbed on clothing. Now, many commentators, many scholars have speculated as to why that was. Some have said that because this was part of the Jewish tradition at that time and that's why the Prophet ﷺ did not like it. Some have said that this was more common amongst the women folk at that time and that's why the Prophet ﷺ advised the men against it. A lot of this is from speculation. What we know for a fact is that the Prophet ﷺ disliked it. He did not very much approve of it. Some scholars have said that it's haram, it's impermissible. The vast overwhelming majority have said it is makruh, it is disliked. And yet, and, and uh, when, when it comes to all the reflections and speculation, what seems to make the most sense, what some scholars and commentators have mentioned, was zafaran as it is today. Saffron is extremely expensive. It's extremely expensive. So rubbing it on one's clothing was, even though if somebody was doing it for the fragrance of it, 
interestingly enough, saffron actually does not emit a lot of fragrance. It's not the most fragrant thing. But what it primarily has is coloring in it. So the Prophet ﷺ disapproved of it. Why? Because if somebody wanted fragrance, there were other things that they could apply that were a lot more fragrant. But in the culture, saffron, za'faran, was actually a sign of, you know, was a sign of extravagance. It was a way to kind of show off. If you had saffron rubbed on your clothing, that was like, this person is so wealthy that they can run, that they can rub saffron on just their clothing. That this person put saffron on just on his shirt before he went out to work. That was like a sign of like showing off and boasting about one's wealth. And that was one of the reasons why the Prophet ﷺ disapproved of it. Because that type of arrogance and that type of boastfulness and showing off of one's wealth, there's no hate in it, there's no good in it. But he did not say it was completely prohibited because he met Abdurrahman bin Auf radiallahu ta'ala anhu after he had gotten married, after basically he had had the wedding and the walima, the wedding, and the Prophet recognized that he, he just had the walima because he had saffron rubbed on his shirt. And the Prophet recognized from that, but he did not prevent him, he did not stop him because that was the occasion of his walima. That was his wedding. He said, okay, that's understandable. But just seeing a person just come to the masjid and just randomly having that saffron rubbed on their clothing, the Prophet ﷺ did not approve of this. He said, this is not good. This is not good. And so that's why he disapproved of it. Now, the reason why Imam Tirmidhi brings this particular narration after you understand that is how the Prophet ﷺ handled that situation. Because you have to understand the Prophet ﷺ, and this is the other thing, you have to be very cognizant of what your place is. You have to be very cognizant. You have to be very aware of how a person feels about you. That this is the messenger of God ﷺ. That the Prophet ﷺ understood that if he was to just call him out right there, this person might just kind of rip his shirt off. This person might just want to like melt and die on the spot. Think about somebody, there's nobody anybody loves more than the Prophet ﷺ. No human being anyone ever loves more than the Prophet ﷺ. And there's no human being you respect more than the Prophet ﷺ. So the most beloved person to you, the person you respect the most, the person you admire the most, the person whose words you, ha- you hang on their every single syllable, that person, if that person was to kind of call you up, be like, why do you have saffron rubbed on your clothing? That's not good, don't do it. You would basically just lie down and ask someone to perform your janazah. Right? Like, that's it. I should just die now. I have no reason to live. Right? I've just, I'm going to walk out of here and keep walking until I find a cliff and just keep walking. Right? Like, just, I mean, just think about it. it it'd just be so demoralizing. It'd be so demoralizing. So the Prophet ﷺ is so sensitive. He understands. Look, I got Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, Ali... I got these people who I can just talk to. And yes, they respect me and love, they respect and love the Prophet more than anyone else, but there's also that relationship that's there. But this person, maybe it's the first time the Prophet was having a personal, more intimate kind of interaction with, that in that first conversation, 
I mean, think about it. Somebody you met for the very first time that you admired and loved and respected for a very long time, and in your first interaction, the person kind of tells you, hey, what's your deal? What are you doing? Don't do this. What do you want? Right? You just... Think about how hurtful and how demoralizing that would be. You'd be scarred. The Prophet was so sensitive, he understood this. And he recognized that there's someone else who's sitting here who is very close friends with that person, a peer... So the Prophet ﷺ, after that person left, told that person, if you can advise your friend not to rub saffron on his clothing like that. You see how benevolent and how generous and kind and gracious the Prophet ﷺ is. You have to be very careful. You have to be extremely careful. We have too much of this attitude in our community that somehow, you know, if you have something, if you're, if you're trying to teach someone something or you're trying to correct someone, then you're doing them some grand favor. You're bestowing such a great blessing upon them by advising them and counseling them and correcting them that it does not matter the impact that that's going to have on their heart. قُلِ الْحَقِّ وَلَوْ كَانَ مُرًّا Hadith of the Prophet and authentic. Speak the truth, even if it be bitter. But I have a question for you. How do you know something's bitter? You taste it. Not bitter to somebody else. Bitter to you. Speak the truth, even when it's against yourself. Speak the truth, no matter how hard it be for you. What does the Quran say? Stand for what's true, what's right. As witnesses before God, even if it be against yourself. We've somehow turned this into a license to just going around offending everyone. As long as I can add a couple of Arabic words into it. You know, inshallah. Alhamdulillah. You suck. Right? <laughs> then somehow that makes it all okay. That just made it all okay. Right? So we have to be very careful about this. Look how sensitive the Prophet is. The next hadith, hadith number five. قال المصنف حدثنا محمد بن بشار قال حدثنا محمد بن جعفر قال حدثنا شعبة عن أبي إسحاق عن أبي عبد الله الجدلي واسمه عبد بن عبد عن عائشة رضي الله تعالى عنها أنها قالت لم يكن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم فاحشا ولا متفحشا ولا سخاب في الأسواق ولا يجزئ بالسيئة سيئة وَلَكِنْ يَعْفُوا وَيَصْفَحْ Aisha رضي الله تعالى عنها She narrates that the Prophet of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم did not speak profanity. He did not use profanity. Nor, was he, nor did he participate in obscene activities. Nor did he used to yell in the marketplaces. Nor would he repel, respond to evil with evil. Rather he would forgive and forget. Now, in this narration, there's this basically, the, some of the commentators on this narration, Imam Bajuri and others, have mentioned that this demonstrates the great eloquence of our mother Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. And 
the, the language that she uses is so powerful and eloquent. The first word is fahish. Now, to explain further, because it said he did not use profanity, nor did he participate in obscene scenes or activities, uh, to better explain that, that was just trying, me trying to translate it as summarily as possible. But to explain that, what that means is that it was not taba'an bit taba'. Like he just was not just such an obscene, rude, you know, uh, profane, crass person that it was just profanity and obscenity was just something very natural to him. It just rolled off his tongue as we see very common today, tragically and unfortunately. Nor did he takallufan, nor did he kind of go out of his way to kind of participate or listen or take part in a conversation where there was obscenity or profanity. So he naturally was not inclined towards it. It didn't just come from him naturally, nor did he kind of put himself in those situations. He of meaning what? He avoided it altogether. He found it so distasteful that he just avoided it altogether. And then, So it mentions something very specific. And I, and I want everyone to understand this. This is eloquence again on the part of Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. Aswaq means the marketplaces. Now again, somebody might be thinking, why is somebody yelling inside of a grocery store? Right? Why is somebody yelling inside of the mall? Right? That sounds strange. Right? Of course he didn't do that. Right? But if you've ever been to like a flea market, uh, or if you've been right here, they have the car auction, right? You've been to a place where they're auctioning items and people are yelling, right? Or you've been, you know, some other parts of the world in the marketplaces where people are yelling, right? They'll be yelling about, you know, they're selling potatoes for this much, right? And everyone's kind of yelling back and forth and shouting and things like that. Um, so that's, but the Prophet ﷺ, even in the marketplace, he didn't yell, yell and shout and scream. Which means what? The marketplaces were the one place where if you started to yell and scream, you didn't seem completely out of place. But he wouldn't even do it there. Which means what? Would he ever do it in the masjid? Would he ever do it at home? Never. So if he would not even yell in the marketplaces, forget about anywhere else. He was always very soft-spoken and very dignified in his speech. That's who the Prophet ﷺ was. Then it says, وَلَا يُدْزِئُ بِسَيِّئَةِ أَسَيِّئَتَى That he did not respond to evil with evil. Now, fiqh-wise, this can bring up the question, what about an eye for an eye? First and foremost, first and foremost, the vast overwhelming majority of Islamic scholarship, the Usuliyun particularly, clarify and explain to us that even the whole idea of retribution is not to be taken by the individual. Individuals are not allowed to enact retribution. This must happen under the supervision of the law, of the authority. Somebody can't just go and personally take retribution. You have to follow a legal course of action. That is the viewpoint of our fuqaha. Otherwise, it's called vigilantism. And that is not permissible in Islam. But you must follow legal procedures in order to be able to do that. So that whole idea, eye for an eye, 
is not even a question here. But even where it might, there might be some recourse, the Prophet him himself, he would not take that recourse. And this is mentioned in Surah An-Nahl, Surah number 16, at the end of the Surah, وَإِنَ عَاقَبَتُمْ فَعَاقِبُوا بِمِثْلِ مَا عُقِبْتُمْ بِهِ When Allah addresses the community, He says, when you are wrong, then you may seek recourse to that wrong, but only to the level that you were wronged. وَلَئِن صَبَرْتُمْ Addressing the community, but if you are patient, if you practice patience, لَهُوَ خَيْرٌ لِلصَّابِرِينَ Then that is better. For those who have the capacity to do so. But then after addressing the community, Allah directly addresses the Prophet ﷺ. Wasbir. But you, O Muhammad, you must practice patience. Wasbir. And your patience is only for the sake of Allah. It is not a sign of weakness. It is not a sign of, you know, it is not a lack of justice. But it is for the sake of Allah. It is a sacrifice that is made for the greater good. So that's what's being talked about here. But rather the Prophet ﷺ would ya'fu, he would overlook, وَيَصْفَحْ Right? Which basically means that the Prophet ﷺ would not mention it. Therefore we have that expression uh, where we say forgive and forget. Like not mention it again. فَمَنْ عَفَا وَأَصْلَحَ فَأَجْرُهُ عَلَى اللَّهِ Whosoever forgives, overlooks, and then will reconcile then that person's reward is upon God. Meaning Allah, ta- Allah will personally reward that person for what they've done. And this was of course a command to the Prophet ﷺ within the Qur'an as well. And the last narration here that we'll cover, and we'll leave the rest of the chapter inshallah for the next session. قَالَ الْمُصَنِّفُ حدثنا هارون بن إسحاق الهمداني قال حدثنا عبدة عن هشام بن عروة عن أبيه عن عائشة رضي الله تعالى عنها قالت ما ضرب رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم بيده شيئا قط إلا أن يجاهد في سبيل الله ولا ضرب خادما ولا امرأة The translation of this is that the Prophet of Allah, the Messenger of Allah, Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha says, that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam never ever struck anything with his hand, ever, except unless he was fighting in the path of God. He was out in the battlefield. Nor did he ever strike a servant, nor did he ever strike a woman. Now, the translation, the, the translation is very, very clear. doesn't require any further elaboration. But the thing to explain here is that the first part of the narration, the Prophet ﷺ never struck anything. Ever. Unless, of course, he was out in the battlefield. But then it mentions specifically servant or woman. So why is that mentioned specifically? So this is a rhetorical function of the Arabic language, which is called تَخْصِيصٌ بَعْدَ تَعْمِيمٍ ذِكْرُ الْخَاصِ بَعْدَ الْعَامِ To mention something specific after having mentioned something general. When you say something very generally, that encompasses everything, and then you mention something more specifically. Alright? 
So if somebody was to say, may God's peace and blessings, والصلاه والسلام على جميع الانبياء والمرسلين ومحمد ومحمد ابن عبد الله right that may god's peace and blessings be upon all the prophets and messengers and muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam that's not saying that muhammad is not a messenger or a prophet wala ayatu billah but you mention all the messengers and prophets and then you mention the prophets sallallahu alaihi specifically so it's a rhetorical function in the Arabic language. You've mentioned everything, and then you mentioned something specific. Now the real question is, why do you mention something specific? In our context, if I was saying, وَالصَّلَاةُ وَالسَّلَامُ عَلَى جَمِيعِ الْأَنْبِيَاءِ وَالْمُرْسَلِينَ God's peace and blessings be upon all the messengers and prophets, especially upon the Prophet ﷺ, Muhammad ﷺ. Why did I mention the Prophet ﷺ more specifically? Well, there could be a reason. Maybe because we're studying the Shama'il of the Prophet ﷺ. We're studying in a seerah class. Right? There's some relevance to the conversation to the Prophet ﷺ specifically. And that's why we singled him out by mentioning him. In this particular context, Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, after saying the Prophet ﷺ never struck anyone anything, she then mentions more specifically that he never struck a servant nor he struck a woman specifically why? Because at that time, in that social context, pre-Islamically, there was a huge problem that existed at that time. Where people's servants, people who worked for others, their khuddam, their servants, were subjected to a lot of physical abuse. And this was something the Prophet ﷺ addressed. And he reprimanded. He saw a man striking a servant and the Prophet ﷺ said, God has more power over you than you think you have over this servant. So you want to strike him? God will smite you. And then he felt so repentant, remorseful. So messenger of God, how do I make up for this mistake? He said, tawbatuka itquha. That the way you repent is you must free this slave now. And the person freed the slave on the spot. And similarly, very tragically and unfortunately, pre-Islamically, women were subject to a lot of physical abuse. And this is a problem even till today. I'm talking about why Aisha mentions it at that time, because that was a problem. And it's still unfortunately and tragically a problem. And that's why she mentions it. And this was something also the Prophet ﷺ addressed. That good people do not strike their women folk. Do not abuse their women. And the Prophet ﷺ addressed this very seriously. And so this is why Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha mentions it here specifically. Because it was a very serious problem at that time, just like it's a very serious problem today. Now I do not want to become entangled right now into the whole conversation about 434. Right? Surah number 4, ayah number 34. But I'll mention this much. I can give a reference for reading because it, I actually do teach a class where I talk about it and it takes me about two and a half hours to really break the issue down for everyone. So unless y'all got time, I got time. But uh, the, the, I'll mention this much. I'll direct everyone to read the tafsir of Ibn Ashur. The tafsir of Ibn Ashur. And in the tafsir of Ibn Ashur, the author explains this particular issue. 
that there's no precedence, that there is no situation or circumstance in which a citizen, a common person, is given physical license to physically reprimand and physically abuse another person who is a citizen of the state. Without and unless and until there is proper legal functions and recourse in place. Now I know that might seem a bit cryptic, but what it's basically saying is that what the ayah is talking, I can tell you what the ayah is not talking about. The ayah is not saying that a husband has absolute license, has carte blanche to be able to physically abuse his wife. By no means is it saying that because that would be something completely contradictory to everything else the Quran says and what the Prophet says. It's speaking about very specific scenarios in which the law and the courts would still be in place to ensure that there was no actual abuse. That there might be circumstances which dictate physical redress, physical reprimand, but abuse would not be tolerated in any circumstance. And there were instances and cases in the time of the Prophet at the time of the companions, very visibly, very prominently documented, where women who were actually abused came to the courts and were granted separation from the abusive spouse. And there were circumstances in which the spouse was held accountable in the court of law, was lashed, was penalized, and was punished for abusing the spouse. So there's still a lot more that can be said and needs to be addressed about this particular issue. But what everyone needs to take home is this. Domestic violence is completely unacceptable, impermissible, haram from an Islamic perspective. There's absolutely no permissibility, no leeway, no allowance in regards to it at all. And that's all we need to know. If somebody does want to further research, they're more than welcome to. And, and uh, go and ask and sit with scholars who are well versed on the particular issue. But as far as the general community is concerned, domestic violence is, is, is impermissible. And it's something that should not be tolerated, um, not within the home and not within the community. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us the ability to practice everything that has been said and heard. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guide us to what is best. Subhanallah bihamdihi, subhanakallah bihamdik. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta. Nasakfirka wa natubu ilayk.